Wow, good morning. Super excited to be here with you. Uh, if I have not met you before, my name is Nate, and I'm a pastor up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania right now. Uh, my cousin Nate is here as well. I see you right in the middle of the crowd. Dude, I'm going to be pounding at you all morning. That's, that's what's happening there. So my aunt lives in Centerville, and so we love this particular area. Uh, actually, we, I had a chance to enjoy. I brought my youngest son with me. He had a friend from Kuala Lumpur who has also moved back. And yesterday, we went and saw the Museum of Natural History together. And um, we love D.C. And uh, even more, we love you as a church. Uh, we have a long connection with you. And that's why when I got out of my car here this morning, I barely got around to the to the to the to the back there and Joyce was yelling Nate why didn't you tell me we were coming I'm sorry Joyce she's not here right now but sorry Joyce um, in that way um, but uh, we uh, um, we love you we love you as a church um, have preached here a couple different times if you're visiting here today um, I'm the obviously the guest preacher and um, and I my heart is so for you as a church for the pastor of this church. We've been praying and praying and praying and uh, continue to do so, will continue to do so. Um, I believe it was two Sundays ago, uh, uh, Mission Church in Lancaster prayed specifically for you as a church in your search for a pastor, that you would find one soon. And um, when your uh, group of leaders came up to the conference that we did in November, uh, we made a special emphasis to pray for you guys. And um, so much of that is just because we love you dearly. And, uh, and so um, we pray regularly for you on that. And so um, glad that I could come and be a guest preacher for you here today. But most of all, my heart wants you to have uh, your permanent pastor. And so uh, looking forward to that, uh, that day when that comes. Um, <clears throat> so um, this morning, um, it is a joy to be with you. And I have already enjoyed the worship that we've done together as we've rejoiced in the Lord. Do you know what the uh, theme of this uh, message is going to be here today? Joy. Joy is what, the, what we're going to talk about here today. Uh, love that you lit the candles. Uh, I just want to apologize to you. Uh, Pastor Hang, um, I, I did not teach him to use fake, fake candles. Um, that's okay, though. I understand why we do that. Uh, but if we were to actually have like the, 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 the real candles and, and the way it's traditionally done, uh, the candles wouldn't be all one color. There would actually be, be a number of colors. There would be kind of a purplish blue, three of them, and then there's one pink candle, and that's the candle that we're going to talk about today that represents joy. Um, actually, uh, the whole idea of joy came, uh, it's called Gaudette Sunday. That's a French word. I probably butchered it because I failed French in high school. Um, so Gaudet Sunday, it's actually from the Latin, uh, it means rejoice, and in the 10th century, a carol was actually created that, to celebrate this particular Sunday. I didn't bring it to you though, because it's one of those monk carols that has like no variation whatsoever, and I got to think, wait a second, they wrote a carol about joy, and there's no joy on the actual expression of it. So I figured, scratch that, we're not going to play that. Um, but this is Gaudet Sunday, Rejoice Sunday. Um, my family was actually asking me about this trip around Thanksgiving. We were sitting around the, the table together and uh, saying we were going to come to Fairfax. And some, one of them said, Dad, what are you preaching about? And I said, Joy. And they all laughed. <laughs> Apparently, I was then informed, I am the least likely to be accused of joy in my home. That fits. Have you ever seen that meme where it, it's, it's this big gorilla and it says, being a dad means being grumpy and knowing stuff? Like, okay, well, that, that's me then, right? That's, that, that's what I fit. But I, I recognize that that's not the greatest thing, and I need to improve my image in my home and this whole idea of joy. And so um, now they're all super embarrassed to drive in the car with me because every time I see one of these Christmas decorations out on the lawn that says joy, I yell it at the top of my lungs. Joy! I'm trying to improve my image about joy with them, and it doesn't seem to be cutting it. My 16-year-old daughter is super embarrassed, which also is one of the roles of a dad. And so I feel like I'm accomplishing something there even in the midst of it, right? But I did get, begin to think a little bit about that. I, I don't think they're completely inaccurate to say, well, you know, dad, you're not like the, the, the hallmark poster for joy. 
And, and I think it has a lot to do with my disposition and how God's made me. I'm more introverted than preachers normally are. And, 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 and so there's just this thing where uh, I, I recognize that it, just out of my disposition, I don't think I'm a joyful, bubbly person in that way. And, and, but then beyond that, begin to just kind of evaluate, yeah, you know what, I don't always... I tend to look, see things as the glass half empty version of things. And, and, and so as life goes through, I, I, I have that. And anybody, anybody else kind of like that here? Raise your hand if you're kind of like half of you here should be raising your hand, right? And, and, so, and so in all of this, I, I have this struggle with joy. I, I think it's not uncommon for all of us to struggle with joy. And so we, we like this candle of joy and proclamation and, and, uh, and really uh, have to kind of go... Well, it's kind of like this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. It, I call this the 4 by 4 verse for joy. Like when life goes off roll, road, I need a 4 by 4 and, and, uh, and I need this verse. Philippians 4, 4 is the 4 by 4 verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. So joice, but redo it. So do it two times. And then he says it again, so it's four times, and we need joy for, the, for when life goes off-road. I was thinking about my favorite Christmas commercial that's going on right now, and it's the one where Santa pulls up to the cul-de-sac, and he's searching in his car, and he can't find the gift for the little girl that's in the window, and then Mrs. C saves the day. She gets in her Mercedes 4x4, and she drives through the snow, and she shows up with the puppy that goes to the little girl, right? Have you seen that one? And so many times I think, well, we're supposed to have that kind of joy, right? And yet, and yet in all of this, um, I don't always feel that way. And I don't always have the circumstances in life that would suggest that I should even feel this way because we're, we're living in this broken world, this world where joy, it, it would be inauthentic to express this kind of explosion of happiness because that's not the circumstance of what's going on right there. Anybody have a circumstance like that that you're kind of concerned about right now? It's bringing some sorrow into your life, not joy into your life. And anybody with me on that? Need to have a couple? Okay. So uh, I think we need a four-by-four four type of joy. I think we need to figure out why does it say rejoice in the Lord always again? I say rejoice, and we can actually be obedient to the command of that even when we live in the broken world right now, that we understand we're living in this already not yet time period. Christ has done everything that's needed for our salvation, and yet he left and said, I want you to tell a whole bunch of people that I have planned to join us in heaven for the big party that's there, but it's going to be difficult for you in that time, and then, and then it's going to come back. I'm going to come back for you. And so we're living in the, it already, everything needed already happened, but it's not happened yet. And so I live in the midst of this, and I struggle with joy because of the brokenness of the world. Now, you, I think, in particular, should know about the struggle because you have to do something every day that I don't, and that's drive in D.C. traffic. <laughs> Has anybody ever cut you off? Because they do that all the time. I mean, it happened like six times just on the road down here today, and it was like, wait a second, these people are crazy on the road. How can I be joyful when all of this is happening, right? And then last night, we were trying to find a parking spot for the Natural History Museum. Have you tried to find a parking spot downtown? That is not a joyful experience. And so as I went round and round and round, I was like, all right, Lord, keep teaching me joy because this isn't feeling like it right now, right? Or, or maybe more seriously, it's, it's news that you've heard about your health. And you're like, wait a second, Lord. Rejoice always? Or maybe there's a child that's wandering you're like, man, I had so many hopes for them, and the most is that they would love the Lord, and it seems so far from that right now. Or maybe it's just the everyday struggle with coworkers. You're like, I don't really like my job. I mean, I like what I do, but the people that I work with, like, come on, rejoice always. Like there's a lot of reasons in the world today that it would be incredibly difficult. And, and I think we give ourselves a pass on this whole idea of rejoicing, of expressing joy always. 
And yet the Bible teaches us this. The, the Bible tells us that we should be joy-filled individuals. And, and I think it brings a little bit of guilt in my life because I know that to be true. I know that the, there's this message that, that really is a, a joy-filled message and it should fill me with joy. And I should be expressive with joy. I, I should l- Listen, if it's real joy, I can't contain myself. It, it is jump up and down, raise my hands in the air. They just won the NFC championship type of thing, right? Oh yeah, you're from Washington. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) So where does it come from? Where does joy come from? If God commands us to rejoice always, to express joyfulness, he doesn't leave us without the ability to do so, so we have to find where it comes from. Where does it come from? How can we obey the commands of Scripture to rejoice? Because there's all over the Scripture. It's in the Old Testament, New Testament, it's everywhere. And I know I'm supposed to, but I'm not known for joy. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2 We begin here in this particular passage, which, by the way, I found out on Thursday was preached last week. (laughs) It's like, do I change the message? Do I change the message? And and here's here's the thing. I, I decided not to because... I was wrestling so hard with this topic of joy that's all over the Bible, and there's so many different things that we could say about it. Psalm 1611 talks about the presence of God, and and there's just a number of places that we could handle joy, but but I realized that, that the foundation and the source of joy really comes from what this paragraph of Scripture says. And so... I thought, well, that's okay. The pastor Bren preached it last, last week. He, he preached on the theme of peace, and that peace is certainly part of this passage. But let me, uh, let me just move us to an understanding of joy from this as well. So if this is familiar because you were here last week, that's okay. We're going to be talking about the theme of joy in, a, in it as well. This is where joy starts. It starts with Advent, this shepherd's candle that they call it, that's usually pink, and it's the candle of joy and proclamation. It's because it starts right here. Joy joy starts right here. We're looking for joy. Where is it? When somebody cuts me off in traffic, where is it? When I'm dealing with difficult news, this is where it starts. Let me read verse 8 onwards down to 14 here today. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Do you see joy in the passage right there? Good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's good news of great joy. This passage is teaching one main thing that you need to understand about joy, and it's this. Great joy has been made available to you. Great joy, great joy has been made available to you. How should we respond to that? Well, let's start with the first part of this phrase. Great joy has been made available to you. Let's start with looking at what is the great joy made available to us. So if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write this down, this might be helpful. Number one, great joy has been made available to you. Let me show you three ways in the text that talks about joy that we need to understand about how joy is made to us, how it is great joy. The first thing I want you to see is that joy is God's purpose, not judgment. So many times when we kind of begin to interact with God and, and, and people start to think about God, they, they just think of him as kind of angry all the time and, and, and angry for what you just did or thought or said. And, and let me just tell you right now, that, that is the lie of the devil to make you think that God is always angry with you because he's the exact opposite. He's full of joy 
for you, and he wants you to live from joy. His purpose is not judgment, although he will judge those who don't believe in him. But that's not his purpose, and he shows it in this story. Let's look at the first couple of verses together. In verse 8, it says, the same region, we're going to talk about that region in just a second, there were shepherds out in the field. They were keeping watch over their flock by night, and they get this interaction with God. And what I want you to see here is, notice who gets the message from God. It's shepherds, who were considered very lowly in this particular culture and day. This, this was a job that, while it had to be performed, those who performed it were not seen in a positive light. It wasn't like, I can't wait for my kid to go to shepherd school so they can grow up and be, get that good job and, as a shepherd. That's, that's not, they were considered dirty, they were smelly, they were crude, crass, low, low, blue-collar, lowest of the blue-collar type of work. And yet what they were doing is keeping watch over their flocks by night. Likely, by the way, the, the flocks that were then used for the Passover lambs that would be celebrated shortly, they're the ones that actually had to take care of them beforehand. And so notice that the, the message comes to shepherds who are lowly. They're not kings. They're not governors. They're not celebrities. This is already a clue at the very beginning to something Jesus wants us to understand. But let's keep going. It says in verse 9 that the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So the angel of the Lord, an angel is, is simply what? A messenger. Same word, often used in the Greek, angel, messenger, it's the same one, a messenger of the Lord. Now we understand our, our theology of angelology, they're actually pretty awesome creatures, but not like us. And yet, and every time in scripture that somebody interacts with an angel, it always starts with fearfulness, okay? Every time in the Bible, because they're not little fat babies with harps and little arrows, right? They're actually fearsome creatures. Angel of the Lord comes, and it's not only the angel that is scaring them, it's that the glory of the Lord shines around them. The presence of God is a Hearing before these lowly shepherds right now, and they respond the way everybody in the Bible does when glory and angels show up. They're, they're always fearful, and they are fearful. And yet we get a message here in verse 10. The angel says to them, fear not. You see, I'm not coming with judgment. Actually, there's some good news of great joy that I want to tell you about. Fear not. Behold, look, 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 there's good news of great joy. It's for all people. Okay, so who's this message for? Raise your hand if it's for you. Everybody raise your hand. It's for all people, all people. So it's not just for the shepherds as they're watching their flock at the instant and moment that the angel shows up, but there's a message that is for all people. By the way, all people, not just every person living at that moment, but every person throughout history, all people. That's why you can raise your hands. And he's saying here, the purpose here is to give a message of good news of great joy. Joy for all people, even those who are grumpy pants. I was a little grumpy this morning. I was so excited to come and preach about joy and all the things I've been learning about joy, even though that's not my reputation. And I wore my most colorful shirt for that. And I forgot the shoes to go with it. I'm wearing my sneakers, guys. Not on purpose, okay? I forgot my shoes. It wasn't a moment of great joy at that time, right? And yet, in all of this, I realized that... Even at the moments where there's a situation that would cause me to want to be grumpy, the purpose that God has is that he wanted to give me a message today and every day to help my grumpy heart for whatever it is that's making me grumpy. Because joy isn't just an instant moment thing. It's, it's a posture. We're going to define this more in the future, but just kind of hold, your, hold that in your mind for a second. Joy is God's purpose, not judgment. Notice then also, the one born that's being talked about here is the one that brings joy. This is the one that brings joy. In verse 11 it says, for unto you is born this day. So what is the message of good news? 
that's going to give great joy? The message is, there's somebody that's been born this very day in the city of David. The one who's been born is the one that's going to be good news of great joy. So who is that? We, we don't actually get the name here. But we get everything about his identity. It says here that it's a savior who is Christ the Lord. So let's just talk about those things for a second. Just meditate on that for a second. What does it mean that he's a savior? It means that he's a rescuer. Somebody who is a savior or somebody who saves somebody, somebody who rescues them out of a dire circumstance. And here he's saying a rescuer is coming. His identity is one that he will rescue. How's he going to rescue? Well, we're, we're going to see here in a second. But, but he's not just a rescuer. Actually, in the original language, it doesn't have any of those words in between. It just says, Savior Christ Lord. Unto you is born in the city of David, Savior Christ Lord. Now, the English supplies some help for understanding here. It says, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They would put some articles in there to help us read it a little bit more clearly. But the Greek is trying to emphasize something here. It's trying to help us see that this, this baby that's born is, first of all, Savior, but that's not the completeness of his identity. He's second of all, Christ. Christ, by the way, is the New Testament understanding of the word that was in the Old Testament called Messiah. Is there anything written in the Old Testament about a Messiah that's coming? Yeah, it's like the whole Testament is about that, just, just about, right? And so we see here that this is prophecy being fulfilled. He's not just a rescuer, he's also a promise fulfiller. But not just that, there's one more thing you need to know to complete the identity, rescuer, promise fulfiller, and then third, Lord. And it's like, okay, how do we, what's the definition of Lord here? Well, we find it actually in the text. If you look up in the previous verse, we see here that there's an, or a couple verses, there's an angel of the Lord. So, so whoever this Lord figure is, it's somebody who has the ability to command and send angels to earth. Does that begin to describe who this individual is? Yeah. But, but not just that, it, it, it's also mentioned that there's glory of the Lord is radiating around them as well. So whoever the Lord is, not only can command and send angels to earth, but it's somebody who has glory that radiates when he shows up on earth. So while it didn't say it concisely and clearly, what would you say... Just go ahead and shout out. What, who is, what's the description? Who's being talked about here when it says Lord? Shout it out. Jesus. Yeah. Deity. Deity. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, three in one. It's the God of the universe that this little baby is. So he's a rescuer, he's a promise fulfiller, it's the God of the universe that's showing up here. We see, first of all, that the purpose that, that we have here is joy, not judgment, and then we see who he is, he's a rescuer, promise fulfiller, he's God himself. And then there's this fascinating little bit about the sign in verse 12. Look at verse 12 again with me. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. So, anybody have a manger at home? You're probably not super familiar with what a manger is, although you've probably heard the description if you've been in church and at Christmas time in particular any, any amount of time, right? I have a manger in my house. We have a little nativity scene. It's one of the key pieces of the nativity scene, although we overlook it all the time because it's, it's just the thing that's holding the little baby in, in there, and that's the focus, right? Jesus is the focus. So I don't really think about the thing that's holding Jesus, and by the way, we've kind of made the, we've kind of hallmark softened everything about this little manger as well, right? Fluffy hay, little box. That's not what a manger is. That's not what a manger is. A manger is a stinky feeding trough. And to those who would have heard the message, the shepherds who took care of animals, they would have been like, what? That's crazy. The sign of the rescuer, promise fulfiller, God showing up 
in this little baby is that he's in the lowliest of places, this smelly feeding trough? That doesn't seem right. But to understand it, I think, I think it's helpful to look at the first seven verses of this chapter. Let's look at these for a second, because I think the manger is mentioned here. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own home. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed who was with child and while they were there the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn there he is that's the birth account he's already laying in the manger here in these first seven verses in the manger how did he get to the manger this is so cool how did he get to the manger? Well, well, the story that I just read says this, that, that the God of the universe has the authority to create a decree because he's in charge of the most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus at that time. And he uses his authority over the most powerful man in the world to create a decree so that he could move a teenage girl from nowhere, Nazareth, to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. So if there's a God of the universe who's in charge of all things, who, who, who can take the most powerful man in the world and put it in his mind that it's time to do a decree, and that decree will move somebody to fulfill prophecy from Nazareth to Bethlehem, How is it then that they laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn? Does the God of the universe have the opportunity and the ability to actually give them a room at the hotel? Yes, he does. If he can make the most powerful man in the world create a decree so that he can move Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, he could have opened a room at the inn. And so that means that what God is doing here is purposeful. It's purposeful. It's part of God's plan to place the baby in a stinking feeding trough for animals. Because God's plan is to go low to save sinners. It's all part of God's plan to go low to save sinners. The sign that there is a Savior who is Christ, who is God divine arriving, that's going to bring good news so I don't need to be afraid and can be full of joy, is that he's in a stinking feeding trough. And we're going to keep thinking about that for a second, but look at what then happens here. And suddenly, in verse 13, there was with the single angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. All of heaven explodes in praise at the message that God's purpose is joy and that he's sent the savior, promise keeper, God himself in in this little baby and put him in the manger. It causes praise to happen. Which brings me to help understand what joy is a little bit more. But I'm going to have to actually move you from this particular text to the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me just set up, we're going to look at a couple of verses, but let me just set up the context. You remember the book of Nehemiah is about how Nehemiah rebuilds the wall so the exiled Israelites can come back and begin to form their nation again? And they've been all longing for that. But do you remember, too, that Nehemiah, he, didn't, he wasn't actually the first significant uh, uh, character to come back. Actually, Ezra came back first, and Ezra was trying to rebuild the temple and get temple worship started again, trying to get the worship of Yahweh started again. And, and so two of them have been working on this, and in, in chapter 8, we see the, the wall is complete, so what do they do? 
Well, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, what we see is that they gather all the people together, not in the temple, but in the square, and they begin to read the law because the people ask for them to read the law to them. And in that, it's actually reinitiating a significant festival of the Israelites. The most significant festival for Israel was the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement has not been celebrated for many years, and so they're finally getting started, and the walls have been built, but they skipped over when the Day of Atonement was supposed to happen. And so as they're reading from the scriptures, by the way, not not short little 20-minute blurb, they went from like daylight to noon reading and all of this, and the description here is that the people were attentive, and they received it, and they understood it with reverence and agreement, and worship was all happening here, because there were there were preachers who were giving the sense of what God's law actually had to say. It's a pretty awesome event. I get pretty excited about this, okay, as a preacher. But then notice what happens down in verse 9. It says, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe of the, and the Levites who taught the people and said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Notice what they say. They've been teaching about the holiness of God what happens when you're confronted with the holiness of God? Well, well as they're teaching, it says, this day is holy to, the, to your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why is Ezra telling them, don't mourn and weep? Why do you think? Well, the next verse tells us. It says, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They came face to face with the holiness of who God was in the, in the teaching of scriptures, and it caused them great grief inside because they realized they weren't matching up to it, and they were, they were falling short of it. And so it's this, this mourning and weeping of repentance that is happening. It's an awesome moment of revival among the nation. And we often think, well, if it's revival and I'm confronted with holiness and I see how I don't measure up, it should cause sadness in me. And yes, it should. But notice how quickly it's supposed to turn to joy. Don't mourn and weep, because they were all weeping. And when they heard the word of the Lord, verse 10, then he said to them, go your way eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There it is, joy. What I want you to see here is when we're confronted with the holiness of God and it brings us to this place where I fall in front of him because I know I'm not holy and he is, we don't have to stay there long for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So get out the grill, get the steaks on, get the best wine out, and we're going to have a party. Right? Because the message of Jesus Christ is not like, oh, beat yourself for how bad you actually are. It's live a life of worship and celebration to God. Because he's done something for you. The good news is that that he came in the form of a baby in the lowliest of places as Savior, as promised Messiah, as Lord, as God himself, and he's come unto you. And so when you come face to face with your shortcomings, yes, repent. I'm not saying you don't repent. But you don't have to live out of this place of drudgery and groaning and moaning and, oh, how bad am I? You're supposed to be living out of this place of jumping up and down joy because of how good the message is. They hear the reading of the word, they repent, and then they're told, don't mourn and weep, instead celebrate. Steaks on the grill, best wine out, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Which told me something about joy. It tells me something really significant about joy, that that joy is not something that I conjure from inside myself. Joy comes from when I understand who Jesus is. So I can be circling the Natural History Museum looking for a parking spot, really frustrated, full of joy. And when that girl cut me off, full of joy. And even when I have sorrowful news in whatever form it comes, 
there still can be joy. Now, I might not be happy about that. We've got to differentiate some things here. Because I don't want you to think of some fluffy, made-up thing that's going on here. I want you to just get rooted, all four wheels on the ground, four-by-four four joy about what this joy is. How does joy become my strength at my weakest moment? For Nehemiah, the people were at their weakest moment of mourning and weeping. The circumstance happened to be the reading of the word of God, but I mean, the circumstance could be anything. It could be that terrible news that I got or that, that long-term struggle that just doesn't seem to be going the right direction, actually the wrong direction. How can the joy of the Lord be my strength right there in that moment? Let me first illustrate it for you, and then we'll talk more about what it is. So a couple Sundays ago, we had a worship Sunday around Thanksgiving time. And we started off with this song, God is so good. Anybody ever heard that just little song, God is so good? Have you heard that before? How many people have heard that? God is so good. Go ahead. God is so good. He's so good to me. Earlier in the week, I had heard about a couple in our church who was going through some really significant marriage things. He'd made some poor choices. He wasn't sure he wanted to stick around anymore. He wasn't in the service, but she was. And she was standing there, and as we begin to sing the song, our worship pastor, he took that simple little song, had combined it with a couple of other songs, and so we kept singing about the goodness of God. He's good everywhere, every time, all the places, all sorts of things like that. And she wasn't singing. I mean, how could she? How could she? The song kept playing and my pastoral spidey sense was up because I was like, if she walks out of the room, which I think she is, and if I were her, I would be in this moment, I'm gonna chase her down and tell her she's gotta stay because I knew some of the other things happening in the service and it would be good for her soul. And I was gonna try to convince her not to. But I never had to run her down. In fact, at the end of this seven-minute set about God is so good, yeah, tears, yes, tears, but she was still there, and she was singing it. Why? I didn't talk with her. I don't know exactly, but what I would suggest to you, it's this. The joy of the Lord was her strength. Whatever was going on and all the different things and the, that was going through the Rolodex of what she could be thinking at that moment, the joy was her strength right there because she knew she had a rescuer who has fulfilled promises every time before and wasn't going to fail her in that moment of that. In fact, it's God himself. That's how the joy become, of the Lord becomes our strength. That's how the salvation of God, the, the character of his promise keeping, and then ultimately just who he is becomes strength in moments where it doesn't seem possible to actually be rejoicing. We can have this calm confidence about what, who God is that, that will butt up against the circumstance and the sorrow that I'm feeling in the moment, and I can quietly, still with tears in my eyes, stand when I want to run and still sing, God is so good. I mean, even when maybe I'm accusing him a little bit about, God, you're, you say you're good, but it sure doesn't feel that way right now. And that's why in Luke chapter 2, that suddenly the angel and the host are praising God. 
Because I, I know we just kind of had a quiet moment right there, but like in my heart, I'm so excited to tell you about this. We can be filled with joy no matter what the circumstances happen to be because the Lord is our strength. When we get our eyes, when we get remembering about who God is in these things, he becomes our strength. Heaven's worshiping because in a stinking feeding trough lays a baby who is the Savior, Christ, and Lord. And for all whose news this is pleasing, it's going to bring joy. Why? Because God chose for the purpose of joy, not judgment, to send the Savior, Messiah, and Lord of the universe by going so low that we don't have to be afraid but can celebrate. How low did he go? I mean, here he is laying in the stinking feeding trough, but that's not how low he went. That's just a signal to how low he was willing to stoop down so that you could be rescued and not be afraid of his presence and acknowledge that he is God. He didn't just go to a manger, he went to the cross. That's as lo how low he could go. Because that's how he planned to save sinners. John chapter 16 is Jesus' speech, the moments before he goes to that very cross. That night that he went to the cross. Like, like, Right before, he's talking to the disciples, starting back in chapter 14 and 15, and 15 to 17, there's all sorts of great stuff that he's telling them. And in the midst of this, he's telling them, though, I'm leaving you. And they're like, he said, what? Why, why leaving? They were pretty clueless at that moment still. And so in John chapter 16, in verse 19, it says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. That's what he had just said previously. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. There's going to be a moment where you're weeping and lamenting because of what's about ready to happen by me being up there on that cross. Most of the people in the world are going to rejoice. They're going to think, we got victory. The way of the serpent has now won. I, we're striking his heel, and that's going to be enough to overcome this guy who says he's the God of the universe, the Savior, Messiah, the Lord. Notice the mocking tone of the way of the serpents and all of that. They're rejoicing because they think they finally got him. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will, will turn into joy. There's going to be a moment of sorrow, but it's going to turn into joy. When a woman, then an illustration here in the preaching, right? When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Yeah. Tough moment, ladies, sorry. But you know that better than any of the rest of us, how hard that moment is. But when you look at your kid, do you think about that sorrowful moment? Rarely, right? That's the point here. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you... So, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearers and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Remember how I said earlier, we're living in this in-between time of the already of what Jesus did and his coming back. And he says, there's going to be sorrow in the middle, in the already and not yet, this time that we're living in right now. By the way, when Jesus is commanding us to be joyful, rejoice in the Lord always, he, he's saying it by also saying it's in the midst of a sorrowful time that I'm calling you to rejoice. So there has to be something incredibly meaty and solid about this. He says, your hearts will rejoice when I see you again. That's, that's still yet to happen. We're still looking forward to that. That's what still needs to happen. That's when your hearts will rejoice. And by the way, no one will take your joy from you. 
Can't be taken. Can't be taken. As people of faith, can you believe that right there? I'm not going to let my joy be taken by the small little temporary things because the biggest thing, the most important thing, will shape my perspective for all of it. Listen, I'm not saying just be happy-go-lucky. I'm saying, will you put your faith in what Jesus is saying here so that you have a robust joy that will handle whatever comes? Listen, not perfectly. Not that you won't shed tears. Not that there still won't be difficulty. But in the midst of those things, you're going to put your eyes on the fact that the Savior, the, the promised Messiah, the Lord is here. And all the work that he did on the cross I'm putting my belief and trust in that because there's a day coming when all of that goes away. There's no more tears. There's no more weeping. There's no more sorrowful things. And that's going to fuel my perspective right here and right now. So what we're saying here is that this particular text is telling us very clearly that great joy has been made available. Do you understand now how great the joy is? Maybe just expanding your picture just a little bit to that. There's so much more, by the way, in my study of joy. Like I could, I could give you a whole like 10-week series on joy after this particular study. But we're just starting at the source. The, the great joy is that the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord has come in a lowly way and done a lowly thing on the cross so that he could save sinners. That's what brings joy. How do we respond to that? Well, the shepherds actually respond in three ways in this text that I'm going to suggest is the way we should respond as a result here today as well. And so not with very much time, we'll just take a little bit of time here to see this. Notice in Luke chapter 2, after the heavenly host has their, their praise and worship time, their celebration, I'm pretty sure there was steak and wine in the midst of it all. It's a great wedding feast coming, by the way. There's a great wedding feast coming. Look at what it says in verses 15, verse 15. How do we respond to good news of great joy when the angels went away from them into heaven? The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the feeding trough. How do we respond? It's how they responded. Let's go see it. Let's go see. You need to verify the good news. You need to verify, is this news really good and is it really great? When's the last time you've been reviewing the gospel in your life? Do you see how maybe it's important to review the gospel in your life? Like every day, maybe multiple times a day? Go and see, go and see. Joy has a foundation. It's not just something you conjure and make up. It, there, there's something substantial that you can put your foot on. Go find it. Because joy is not a fleeting thing that's supposed to just come and go. A modern day prophet has spoken a little bit about that kind of thing. He says this. It might seem crazy what I'm about to tell you. Sunshine, she's here. You can take a break. I'm a hot air balloon that could go to space with the air like, I don't care, baby, by the way. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel that's what you want to do. Thank you, Farrell. But that's not what this is. And I'm not down on the song, by the way. I love that song. And I need that song sometimes. Right? But that, that's different. He's talking about happiness, not joy. That robust posture that we need to have. It's, it, by the way, this happens in church too, okay? Not just modern prophets, but, but some of the church prophets. They have this like soupy spiritualist, just trust God, everything will be all right. Because we haven't taken time to have the empathy of what's going on that's bringing sorrow to your life and then point you to Jesus. So it happens all over. 
got me to thinking, how do we verify this? Well, we need a definition of what it is. The definition that I have made up, this is my personal, I don't know if it's right, but as close as I could get, I said it this way. Joy is a posture of continual, confident optimism that stands in the face of the circumstances of a broken world because of the security of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. Joy is a posture of continual, confident optimism that stands in the face of the circumstances of a broken world because of the security of salvation in Jesus Christ. The word literally is chara. It means cheerfulness, calm delight, gladness, great joy. And where, did this, where does it come from? Well, we've answered it already. The rescuer, the promise fulfiller, the Lord of the universe has come as low as he can go to save sinners. How do sinners enter that saved state? Well, they repent and they believe and they live. They repent and say, I'm wrong, you're right. My wife was telling me about how Dan Allender said it this way. Repentance is the invitation back into the party. It's like, using that. I love the idea that there's a party that you can get into and, and, and the invitation comes when your heart says, I'm wrong, God, you're right. That's where it starts. He's like, don't stay outside long then. Let's get you into the party. There's steaks and wine. Let's get you in here. We're going to have a good time. Because, listen, I've come for you to not be judged, but for joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? That, that's really what, we're, what the act of faith then is. It says in John 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're not just into the party, you're into the family. So the celebration can continue. And that's why the gospel response to this is not just repenting, it's not just believing in him, but it's also living a life of worship, living in the celebration of the reality of what God has done for us. Listen, life is difficult and hard. It's super easy to get tricked into thinking. It's just drudgery and all of that. But really, it's life of worship. That's why I can worship God in the midst of all the difficult and hard things because he's the one that has saved me and there's a promise of what's yet to come and I can have this calm disposition and posture of continual optimism in the face of it all because he saved me and he got me into the party. So verify that. Have you ever verified that? Have you ever taken time to really consider the things of Christ? Or have you come today wondering, looking, trying to figure it out? Can I just say that, man, your step from today's message is just simply go look for the foundation of this joy thing. Keep looking. Keep exploring. He'll, 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 help, you, he'll help you figure it out. God will. Keep looking. Or maybe if you've already believed in that, but it's super easy to let joy just kind of seep out, then you need to check again. <laughs> and like I said earlier, it's probably a daily check. It's probably a multiple times a day check, right? Why can we have joy? Let me see. Notice then it says, then uh, verse 17, and when they saw it, everything was verified. They saw it. Let me just give you a clue right now. You can keep looking and you can keep questioning and you can keep wondering, but if you actually give it an honest shot, you will see it verified every time, just like they saw it verified. There's a baby in swaddling cloths in a feeding trough. Now I can believe he's the Savior, he's the Christ, he's the Lord. Once all that verification happened, they made it known. They made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the shepherds, what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Just simply this. Good news of great joy cannot be contained. You got to tell people, right? When it's, when it's really good news of great joy. God's purpose is joy. And that can't be contained. It's kind of like when my little guy was born, okay? My third child was born. We were sitting there. We were so happy. I was like, we got to tell dad and mom. My wife was like, you got to give them a name first, right? We didn't have a name quite picked out yet. That took a little longer. And then we could tell the good news, right? 
It's like when you have a child in that. It's like when my oldest child yesterday sent me a text and he sent it to my wife and I and he's like, look what I just got. And I opened the text and it was one of these things you had to hit it and it played this video of the letter that he received that he's been accepted to George Mason University. I thought that would resonate a little bit with Fairfax. That's his number one choice. He got accepted to his number two choice, but he'd been grumpy pants all, like the last three weeks. My wife sent him a text like, what in the world's going on with our son? Well, guess what? Pretty much all that's over, all that's over right now, right? Great news, the, the news he was looking for in that regard. And so he's super excited about that. You can't contain, you have to tell it. I didn't even ask him permission if I could tell you. So don't text him yet. Um, Notice how people respond to good news. They wonder and they treasure it. By the way, wondering doesn't mean they received it. It just means that they admire it, they marvel at it. So I'm not quite sure what exactly going on, but if it's good news, it's like, ah, oh, that's pretty cool, even if it doesn't affect you personally. But to those who it's affecting, they're treasuring it, they're pondering it. Let me just ask you something. Are you making known the good news of Jesus Christ? That's why it's the shepherd candle. It's the candle of joy and proclamation. Make known the joy about who Jesus is. Are you making the good news known? Are you telling people the facts? Not just of this story, but all over the story. And then last, glorify God. Glorify God. Worship God for sending Jesus. Verse 20 tells us what the shepherds did here. The shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Verification again. Notice something. I didn't catch this ever before until I was reading the text this week. They returned to taking care of the Passover lambs. They returned to the normal mundane of life, but with great joy in their hearts. Listen, joy doesn't mean there has to be a massive change of your circumstances. It's a change of your heart so that you can go back to the mundane of whatever you're doing and keep doing it joyfully. But also worshipfully, they glorified and praised God. Notice they went back. It wasn't like they had a worship service out in the field. They just went back to going and doing their work. They were living a joyful life of worship. Worship isn't just what I do on Sunday morning when the worship band is up front. Worship is a lifelong pursuit. It's an everyday pursuit of having this posture of continual confident optimism that stands in the face of the circumstances of the broken world because of the security of salvation in Jesus Christ. just makes me think they treated the lambs differently. And they treated their families differently. And when they heard they had cancer, it was different this time. And when the child was wandering and they were talking about it with the campfire, it was with a different posture. And when a coworker was misbehaving in the shepherd crew, they handled it differently. And when the donkey cart cut, off, cut them off on the way to town for supplies... There's a different response. A worshipful life is a result of confident joy. Are you living a life of worship, not just the moments of worship? Great joy has been made available. How will you respond? Do you need to verify it after today? Like, yeah, that preacher guy, he said some things. I should probably check that out. Do you need to tell somebody about it? How are you going to worship differently as a result that great joy has been made available to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you that it is not something that is flimsy and momentary. It is robust. It is eternal. It deals with the most important things going on in our hearts. Lord, you know the hearts of every individual here, and I pray for them, whatever they're experiencing, whatever the sorrow might be, whatever the circumstance of a broken world that has concerned them and weighed them down and has got their eyes off the reason that they can have joy, Lord, would you, by your spirit, now do a work in them? Lord, we're going we're gonna to sing to you. We're going to worship you. Lord, would you help us to worship differently as a result of knowing these things today? And, and then, Lord, go out and live worshipfully in a different way. 
telling people about who you are because we have this confident verification. You indeed are the rescuer. Thank you for rescuing. Thank you for going as low as you needed to. Thank you for having a servant heart that went just not to the manger, but all the way to the cross. Lord, we see how that fulfilled everything that you said. And so we can trust what you've said here for the coming days. Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship you as the Lord, as the divine God of the universe, as you actually are. You're the one who saves. Your hands have lifted us from the grave. You are the light of life. You're everlasting. You've taken our sins away. Lord, we praise you. We worship you with great joy for that good news. It's in Christ's name I pray.